Hi, it's the Line Podcast. I'm Matt Gurney. I'm Jen Gerson. Today, oh my God, we had a Nazi in Parliament. And we had a notwithstanding clause in Saskatchewan. And I'm afraid we're going to have to talk about military spending again. But first, coming up in Toronto next month on October 18th, our first live and in-person event, Has Toronto Gone Nuts? We're looking forward to meeting a lot of you there. And yeah, Jen's nodding. Yes, I think it has. Uh, we we hope you can get in touch. We'd like you to get in touch with us. Line editor at protonmail.com. We'll give you all the info of how you can uh, join us that night. Also, a special thanks to our sponsors. Uh, Jen Mazzarallo of the uh, Maverick Consulting Group has stepped up and sponsored some tickets for students who otherwise uh, can't afford to attend. So if you are a student and you were hoping to attend but couldn't afford it, Get in touch with us, line editor at protonmail.com. Uh, to anyone else considering making a similar donation, it's that same email address. And of course, to our sponsors so far of Spark Advocacy and Meredith Bosenkuhl, a big thank you to them as well. October 18th in Toronto, line editor at protonmail.com. Nazis, Matt. Nazis. I'm not sure what to say about Canadian politics reigning scandal this week, other than dark, dark laughter and staring off into the abyss. I, I was speechless for days, and I was, I was like the bad speechless, where I kept giggling, and regular viewers or listeners of us here will know that I am not exactly a ray of sunshine. So when I'm bursting into random giggles, either the funniest thing has just happened or something terrible has happened. And it was I, I couldn't I couldn't stop giggling just at the most serious part of my wedding. So like people should probably read into this exactly <laughs> what they want to. Um, so maybe we should sum this story up. Uh, Parliament, uh, it, while honoring uh, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, um, decided to host an international event in, in, in Parliament, and they accidentally invited a former volunteer of the SS Waffen, who had sided with the Nazis in order to fight the Russians for Ukrainian independence. Of course, the SS Nazi part kind of got uh, glossed over at this point, and uh, they, as a result, Parliament sort of unwittingly... Um, The discourse this week has been really stupid because there's been a lot of people pointing out that during the Second World War, uh, particularly in Eastern and Central Europe, people didn't have a lot of good options. You had genociding Soviet communists to one side and genociding Nazi fascists to the other side. And I get that. I've read Bloodlands too. Like, I, I get it. I understand. I understand that people were forced into terrible positions joining a waffen ss unit was an all-volunteer force that was still a choice you made and we don't have to give you a standing o in parliament this is a humiliation for canada it's a propaganda fiasco uh it's a gift to the russians it's a political headache for vladimir Zelensky himself i suspect he has bigger things to worry about because the war is still going on in his country but it's just top to bottom um, uh, a shit show. Now, how it seems to have happened, this is my understanding of this, is someone in uh, former House Speaker Anthony Rota's Ontario riding said, hey, I know a guy who's a veteran who fought the Russians in the Second World War. And in, that should have raised red flags because you know who if was you, fighting the Russians you, in the yeah, Second if World you War. Have, uh, if you have any any basic historical understanding of the conflicts in that era in that time you hear uh fighting the russians during the second world war you know that should that should be setting off some yellow flags right off the bat and this individual yaroslav Huka, it wasn't shy about the fact that he was a nazi like this he, about it. he wrote blogs about it and and you know as i said com- history is complicated of course the ukrainians had undergone at this point the holodomor they had died by the millions at the hands of stalin their dislike of the russians was understandable and Canada made a, a, a conscious choice in history to sort of forgive some of these Ukrainian Nazis and, and give them some some shelter in Canada. 
we can just vote, just to be able to debate whether way. or not. I don't know if we, we forgave well, them, yeah. but we, we averted we, we, just, we made a conscious decision to look the other way. And as a result, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff in Canada, particularly when you go into, for example, Ukrainian cemeteries. There are like, there are private cemeteries that sort of honor Nazi divisions in Ukraine. Like, this is this is a, a weird part of the fabric, particularly out here in, in Alberta, where I live, because of course, a lot of the Ukrainian diaspora came to Alberta. West. Actually, I, I think this is still true, but the uh, Canada is actually the largest home. Sorry, Canada is the home of the largest Ukrainian diaspora of any nation outside of Ukraine, which is kind of I think that's still true. That's interesting. I would yeah, have guessed America with Canada second. No, no, we're first. We're first. Like that's a lot of Ukrainians came here, so like it, there's a weird, complicated, dark history here, and I think it's perfectly fine to to question that and 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 raise some questions about that, particularly among um, Ukrainian groups that still have strong ties to certain allegiances in history. But that being said, you know, there's a difference between turning the other way and like applauding this in parliament. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's so, you know, was... we don't, we don't have to applaud this in parliament. We should, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we shouldn't have applauded this in parliaments. <laughs> I was thinking about this a lot, obviously, over the, the week. And just by a quirk of timing, you know, we do these podcasts on a Friday. So we're recording this almost a full week after the incident. And we've had some time to let it settle. I'm not bursting into dark, grim laughter anymore. But I was thinking seriously when it, when it actually happened. I was trying to think of an example of when a relatively small error magnified through circumstance and context into such a complete catastrophe oh there's no the error itself was small it was a vetting failure probably by a junior staffer Mm -hmm. and then that junior staffer probably relayed it to a more senior staffer who also didn't vet it and then gave it to the speaker who didn't think to double check the work of his staffers you can if you know any big didn't also very clearly like hadn't checked his his notes his speaking, his speaking notes, notes before pulling them out in parliament because i mean i think in we've the had video a he people, pauses he goes oh there's a definitely an oh fuck moment when he when he is reading this out um it's a so small like it's a small error that anyone that who knows government yeah it just compounded well compounded so but I, for a few reasons first of all nazi second nazi. of all circumstances of current ukraine war Mm -hmm. third visit by vladimir zelensky fourth government desperate to get some good press after a Mm -hmm. punishing few months yes five jewish high holidays oh oh no that was the icing on the cake on this and all this and then of course you have this compounded by the fact that it's a it's a government that's highly centralized and tired and punch drunk so they're not at their best at the moment they're they're not making smart they're not, they're not, they're, they're missing the big picture and they're missing the little stuff very obviously as well. Yeah. You know what? I actually, I don't blame the prime minister for this happening. Um, uh, I don't blame the PM. I don't. And I think governments are compartmentalized in weird ways. And I think the speaker owns the responsibility for those small compounding errors. But I think we did get a really interesting demonstration of how this government is in, in deep shit afterwards. Well, and also just, Rota, they, could, they didn't they couldn't react. The speaker Anthony Rota's sort of what one to two day delay before inevitably realizing that they had to that he had to resign was also unfortunate. I mean, this is a class I think you made this point, but you know, Canada's in the midst of a global info war with at least one and maybe now two uh major powers. And we're treating an absolutely catastrophic diplomatic cock up like it's scandal du jour. Like, like, oh, oh, we don't have to actually suffer consequences or take accountability for it because we never do. Why would this be different? Because Canada is a parochial and small place and actually doesn't understand how big of a deal this really was on you know, the international stage. And I would also point out, like, for as much of this as a cock up in, on Canada, it's embarrassing for the entire country, and it absolutely is. It's the real victims here are the Ukrainians, because of course we know that the, the Russians have been big on portraying the Ukrainians wrongly as Nazis. They're not. That's always been ridiculous. I'm not going to get into the intricacies of the Azov Battalion with you, but like that is not true. We've read about it before. We've talked about it before. Um, but ha- having you know Zelensky in the room while Canada applauded a Nazi really could not have been we really couldn't have done anything more damaging. I mean, like the, the $650 million we handed to Ukraine barely makes up for the damage in propaganda that we've now 
parlayed against yep. the, the the Ukrainians due to no fault of their own at all. This is one hundred percent one person in 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 Canadian Parliament's fault, you know. So I, th- I think oh it's boy. Andrew Tumulty in in uh, in the line this week wrote a great op ed um, about how the compounding errors are what they are. It, they happened. It's humiliating and awkward and terrible, but they happened. The government's role to this, once it happens, is how do you respond to it? And mm-hmm. there was absolutely nothing stopping the prime minister, either on Sunday, putting out a statement on Twitter, or on Monday when a reporter caught him heading into the the, uh, the parliament uh, complex of going, look, I'm mortified. I'm so embarrassed this happened. It's a black mark for for all of us. I feel terrible. I apologize to everyone who is offended by this, especially the Jewish community and obviously the Ukrainian delegation. We need to get to the bottom of this. We need to figure out what happened. But the important thing is that this was a mistake. I own it. And I am so sorry it happened. The prime minister, though, will never do that. The prime minister will only apologize for things that happened 150 years ago. He will never apologize for the thing that happened last week at an event he was hosting while he was in the room. It's He's just not wired that way. And if the liberals were effective issues managers now, someone in the room would have sat him down and said, you're going to have to make a statement eventually. We can write it for you. And the only thing that will be different is how many days Pierre Polyev gets to kick you in the balls before you read whatever it is we end up writing you. And I think his statement that he ultimately gave was kind of mealy-mouthed and weak, but I don't even care. The thing that was really interesting to me was that he waited three whole days. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is all indicative of, yet again, overly centralized government punch drunk, right? That's we've seen so many data points on that. Like this is not this is not a company. This is not a this is not a country that's operating on full cylinders at this particular point. Canada's having a month. <laughs> the Nazi thing is probably not even going to top off September at this rate. That's the part Nazi of our political thing. lexicon now. The Nazi, yeah, the thing. Nazi thing, right? Okay. You know, do we have anything I, else to say? Uh, a little bit, actually, and and okay, not, not to further belabor the point, but on uh, Monday. Um, I was watching, God help me. I had question period on, I had my CPAC YouTube feed going and I'm watching it. And the speaker had come out and he had made that first doomed statement of, I feel bad, but I'm not quitting. And then mm-hmm. as you've already noted, that was a mistake. Uh, the prime minister was not in the house. We had Karina Gould, uh, the, the government house leader. Oh, they tried to strike it from <clears throat> answered. Proposing, <laughs> proposing right, a answered book burning. Just grotesquely stupid. We had Mark Miller, the uh, citizenship and immigration minister, angrily tweeting. And it occurred to me, well, a couple of things occurred to me. One, it, it, it speaks further to the point I just made about uh, just wasted days of getting punched in the face. They did not have centralized, coordinated messaging yet. And they had known this was coming since the day before. Eventually, they were able to figure out it was just cla- it was classic these guys they basically settled that the le- these guys the lesson we had to learn was the importance of holocaust education which okay you know what i support um, holocaust education i think these guys in particular could use some given how they had a couple of moments earlier in their term when they were forgetting to mention jews while observing the holocaust so uh-huh. thumbs up to holocaust education but it this was is a learning also, moment for all of us. Matt. It is a learning moment. A learning I have moment learned for all of us. so much this week. Yeah. Um, the, the complete lack of comms is indicative to me of what you and I have been saying for months. They are adrift and leaderless right now. But the actual point I would maybe make that's maybe actually more substantive than all of this, this is a humiliating incident. And it reveals, yet again, things we already kind of knew about this government. But on Monday, when I was watching CPAC, and I was watching just the total shit show, I pulled up the Globe and Mail archive, and I found out almost to the minute when the Globe had broken the story that Canada was going to, uh, Canada believed that India had assassinated a Canadian citizen on our soil. Mm-hmm. And just as fate should have it, as I sat there on my couch in disbelief, it had been almost to the minute, one week 
since that story broke and no one was talking about it. And I, and I don't even mean that in the sense that we in the media had moved on to the next shiny object. I mean, no one was talking about it. The government wasn't talking about it. The opposition wasn't talking about it. The press was still talking about it a little. You said it a minute ago, Jen, we're in an info war. We are in an information war against an emerging global superpower that has been running propaganda against us all this week. And, and then we, we do were, this. And then we and bring we in the Nazis. we were consuming ourselves. And then we bring in the Nazis. And um, all the more reason for the prime minister to have said on Monday morning how mortified he was to get it out of the way and then to start talking about the serious stuff again. But the crazy thing is, Jen, speaker quit on Wednesday. The prime minister said, I think it was on Wednesday as well, he made his apology. And they still have not spoken about the India thing. Everything we know about it, we're reading in the CBC, Globe and Mail, Bloomberg, and the Washington Post. Can I can I throw a contrarian idea there out there for you? You're known for that. Is it possible that we're in an info war that we don't need to win with India? Uh, yeah, sure, we can lose. India, India, India can can turn us and turn us and turn Trudeau into a scapegoat. They can continue to score whatever domestic points they score politically on the Kalistani issue. And we can just tune it out and not give a shit and actually really not lose much. We can absolutely choose not to fight fights we should be fighting. I think that's a bad why, idea, why, but we can do it. Why Why should we be fighting this one? Why should we be fighting back in this info war? What does India really matter to us? I mean, I mean, don't be too blunt about this, but like, what do we care? It would be good practice for fights we might need to win more. Like? anything in the future involving china if we're if we're in an info war with china we're boned the, the, yeah the, but we can decide the, a little bit how boned we're going to be we don't have to be as boned as we would be today this is There's kind of like being kind of pregnant man like you're you're boned or you're not boned i think you can no i i think there are other countries and i would i would point to australia at this australia is better in the info war space than we are even against china i think that's probably true but i'm saying you know if the western alliance more or less holds together it's very possible that we can just be like, eh, we can piss oh, off yeah, India no, we, and we, we can, can just be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, America's can, still got our back. Like we don't, we don't we have can to be care. Luxembourg with prairies. Yeah. I think we shouldn't be, but I guess we can be. I mean, we're kind of heading that path, aren't we? Luxembourg. Yeah, but we're not rich. doing it deliberately. Oh like, yeah. We're, well, we're, we're not stumbling do, in that direction. This is Canada. We're never going to do anything deliberately. I think this is an opportunity. And I mean, I, I pointed this out last week in our dispatch. The liberals have said, and I think they're right about this, that we live in an era of misinformation and disinformation that is being weaponized by hostile actors. Mm -hmm. And they want to have expanded legal powers to regulate online content in theory, or so they claim, to combat that. Okay, I, I think it's a terrible idea, but like if we take the idea seriously, this was an opportunity for them to show what their what their stuff is to show us what they've got you know hey we're in an info war now disinfo and misinfo are being used against us canada's national interests are at stake here's how we're going to champion this and it's a fizzle it there's nothing here and i have real concerns about how these guys would function on the defense even if they grant themselves all these expanded legal powers when they don't even bother show up to, to show up the, in the, mountain the, offense. The, the censor's pen is the last refuge of the ingrate and the incompetent. The I incompetent. Suppose. Right. Okay. We're not going to try um, to win the fight, but we'll just censor it all on the back end incompetently. Right. Okay. So here's another interesting point that I wanted to point out. And I mean, maybe we can move on from this or maybe you care, maybe you don't. What's the strategic game plan for um, for Katrina Gold trying to censor Harvard? Harvard? Hansard, thank Hansard. you. I'm sorry for those who are American and maybe aren't following on this. Hansard is like the written record of the what goes on in Parliament. Parliamentary proceedings, and you, yeah. you, it's so it's almost. I don't. I mean, I, th I think comments have been stricken from Hansard in the past. Yes, including it, fairly recently. But it should be an exceptionally rare event because Hansard is the historic record. This is this is future historians will go and read through Hansard to understand what's happened in Parliament. And particularly major cock-ups and flubs, it's almost more important that those things are not stricken from Hansard than 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 ordinary parliamentary events. So what do you think is the strategic 
game plan for trying to get these records off Hansard? Like, is it just channel changing? Is it desperation? Is it flailing? Isn't it an attempt to try and, you know, put the conservatives on the back foot? Is it we're so embarrassed? Oh, God. Oh, God. Like, I don't. Yeah, I think that's closer to it. Um, it. You have asked a serious question that I do not give the benefit of a serious answer to because I don't think it was careful, deliberate thought. I think it was just a stupid proposal. Just panic. By a government that was adrift. It, it actually, if I don't know if you've actually seen the clip on on CPAC or on on news channels now where it's being proposed um minister the house leader uh, Karina Gould was, was making the proposal and Christopher Freeland was her usual animated self next to her nodding and bobblehead yeah yeah and so I can say it you can't thank you look behind look at all the other rows because oh. you can see a bunch of the liberal MPs, including some ministers, kind of start to go. You know, I wonder if we can use that clip in this in this video podcast. It's, it should be Possibly. open source. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just thought it was interesting. Um, be, I don't see. Look, I, what we saw until they came out with the issue of uh, until they came out with Holocaust education. Right. You have to assume everything up until that moment was panic and flailing and no centralized control or leadership. Uh-huh. And I, I don't like assuming that, but having seen it, I can't draw any other conclusion. Fair I enough. know you I know you wanted to talk notwithstanding clause, and I know you wanted to talk about it next, but can I actually propose it's better to talk defense now because it actually flows out of it this? It flows out. Yeah, then let's do that. So Jen's in a in a moment. Um, oh, and, and by the way, just just a great opportunity. Uh, whenever we pivot topics, Jen, you and I got to get into the habit of saying, "Please like and subscribe." We got to be shameless, like those Minecraft yep. videos my kids okay. watch. So sure, okay. So uh, if you're enjoying this podcast so far, remember, please do like and subscribe us uh, either on YouTube or on your favorite podcast listener of choice. Yeah, and if necessary, we will play Minecraft, and you can watch us do that. Honestly, that sounds like fun. We um, make more money. We, we might. Uh, and uh, anyone who has not signed up for a free account yet at our, our website, it is it's in our it's in all of our links. You can click right through uh, it right now. It is the line.substack.com. We are working on getting a, a custom domain, but it's not ready yet. Sign up for a free account. You'll get access to almost everything that we do. And we have a very high retention rate. You will probably not regret it. Um, Unless you really, really do. We do get some people who really regret it, but they're pretty rare. Uh, and their their complaint emails are hilarious. Mm. All right, let's talk about the reason I want to talk about defense after this, Jen, because I think it's a natural evolution of of this. Sure. Okay, uh, it has been revealed that the Department of National Defense, and this came out uh, Friday today. Yeah, I think Department someone broke of, it. Who broke it? I think it was CBC, but don't quote me on that. Okay, we um, should give credit. If I think if it wasn't exclusive, we should credit. I, I I read it in like seven places at once, and I think CBC had it first. Um, okay. Anywho, billion dollar hit to the defense budget. As Seems part like of... a really, like really opportune moment to cut a huge amount of. After we've been like publicly shamed by the Americans for our lack of proportional GD or proportional spending in NATO, when we're in the midst of an info war that requires the Americans to back us, and after having a Nazi in Parliament, this is the perfect moment to be making substantive cuts to our national defense budget, which is already. Uh, inadequate task i think fundamentally i could make you any series of arguments and i've been making these arguments for years i've got a column archive full of arguments where i am making the case for an expanded canadian national defense capacity mm -hmm. I, I don't know if i'm gonna bother today i mean i I don't know if I'm going to convince anyone I haven't convinced. I wrote a column a week ago today at the line about how naive we are and how reality is going to punch us in the face. Dear listeners, dear viewers, I simply refer you back to that column. There is something you have profoundly failed to convince anybody of this, by the way, should be said. I mean, you're correct, um, but it's almost comical. Like, it's almost like you're you're uh, like the monkey's paw of this particular issue. I'm trying to think that we need we need everybody but you. No one else cares. No one else cares. It's true. I care. You care a little. 
Well, look, I mean, here's here's the thing that I would note, and again, we've written about this in the past. One of the major problems with our national defense is that um, particularly under a liberal government that has its own peccadilloes and ideological blind spots around the role of a military, it's not clear to me what we want our national defense department to do. Yeah. Do we want this to be essentially a national guard? So people nominally in uniform um, who can be mobilized to deal with internal issues, such as, for example, major catastrophes. Forest um, fires, floods. Forest fires, floods, using logistics to move people, yeah. um, which is which is a completely valid use for a military force of a kind, uh, particularly when we're looking at more of these types of events because of climate change and other issues. If that is the role of our defense, we can't really claim that we're putting money toward national defense for the purposes of NATO, for the purposes of, of, of a military alliance. Like Because we, we're only actually equipping a military force to do largely domestic tasks and with maybe like the odd token tour somewhere. So if that's what we are going to do, then we have to be honest with our allies about what we're doing it. But bluntly, we prior to this cut, we weren't funding the military adequate to be a national guard, well, much well, less an expeditionary force. Let me lay it right? out to you in 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 really blunt terms. Fundamentally, the the decision for Canada, assuming we have a military, is what kind of military do you want to be? And we can basically pick from three options. One of them is what Jen is describing. It is purely a domestic emergency force to be that would include um throwing sandbags for floods um d disaster response of any kind for fighting forest fires search Responding and rescue to a freedom convoy yeah search and yeah. rescue that yeah. would be the other one that we could put purely in the bucket of domestic preparedness force yeah. the other one's a little more ambitious than that and it is homeland defense it is probably all that domestic preparedness bucket combined with a coast guard navy and air force sufficient to in collaboration with the united states secure and defend North America. Sure. The next rung up would be the ability to do the first two things as well as contribute expeditionary forces to international missions abroad. Canada's never going to go solo on any large-scale foreign international military deployment, but are we able to contribute some forces? And it can be a very token contribution to a UN peacekeeping mission. It could also or be fielding... Last one would be... Afghanistan would be our yeah. major contribution to. Yeah. Or exactly, I was going to say that. Or it could be an Afghan style and kind of what we're trending towards in Latvia right now, which is that Canada fields a combat-capable brigade, but that where some of the units and capabilities are provided by allies that plug in under Canadian command. So those are the three tiers. Currently, we are not funding the military sufficiently to do any of them. Right. So... We would need to increase funding, equipment uh, availability, equipment serviceability, and manpower availability and training to do an adequate job of the first. We would need to do all, we need to do a lot more of that to do the second, and we need to do a lot more to do the third. And now right now, because we, we don't have a conscious plan, what we have is a military that has partial ability to do all three of those jobs. And but we haven't actually- really well. Yeah, but we have not actually said this is the job we're going to do or the two jobs or potentially the three jobs we're going to do. So right now it's sort of like, well, we can send a few hundred guys to fight this forest fire and a ship or two on a patrol mission, but both of them are kind of a stretch and ad hoc. Right. The thing, but like I said, Jen, I'm I'm not I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go on the same. Well, okay, so let's I've let's let's on. talk. Let's talk about the opposite. What happens when we cut a billion dollars from the budget? Uh, First, why are why are we cutting a billion dollars from an already anemic budget? And what happens when we cut it? That's the why is an interesting question. It either can simply be outright disdain for the military, or it could be a signal that the federal budget situation is eroding. We all know it's going to as debt mm -hmm. servicing costs tick up. Yep, it might be eroding faster than we'd realize, but that's speculative. I don't know. Uh, what it means that that we don't do this, it's going to be up to the military to figure that out. The military is going to basically get less of a budget and they're going to have to decide what to do with it. I'm going to imagine that large scale military procurements that are already underway continue because that's a different budget. Mm -hmm. This is going to be operational spending. So we're probably going to see maintenance on equipment and facilities deferred. 
and training exercises uh, curtailed. Is there a point at which the military just says, okay, with this budget, we just have to massively scale back our capabilities and concentrate our forces on a smaller number of expertise? They've actually already to an extent done that. And in a country where anyone paid attention, that would have had more attention. But the chief of the defense staff, General Wayne Eyre, a few months ago, basically said, we are now standing down from any non-emergency missions and he used military jargon. Basically, it was to get our shit together because like facilities are falling apart. Equipment isn't being maintained. You can't and safely it, deploy men in that in that. So that's the immediate effect of this. But the point I want to make, Jen, and this is like I'm gritting my teeth here because I'm trying not to lose my mind. It's the timing of it all. Yeah, it's because in the last like just consider the last. Six weeks massive domestic deployments of the Canadian armed forces on wildfire operations, the India revelations in which Canada is having to explicitly appeal to our allies to stand with us in solidarity Mm -hmm. combined with the fallout of the Nazi stuff, in which case in a broader sense, it would be better for us to look like we have our shit together in a much more narrow sense, Poland a NATO ally that actually spends on its military is unhappy with us because for historical reasons, Poland now has effective international law jurisdiction over the Waffen SS division in question because that territory now belongs to Poland. Mm -hmm. So it's the Poles who actually would be the ones to take a stand on international war crimes. And they're seeking the extradition of the dude who got the standing O a week ago. He probably, they probably won't work. It's probably just a stunt, but I I agree it's a stunt. Yeah. I 100% agree it's a stunt. And you know what would help us stunt back? If yeah, we having said to any them, kind of hard power leverage at all. Yeah, I any. mean, this is this is this is the this is I think something that I think Canadians don't entirely realize is that I mean, the people listening to this podcast will realize it, but people who don't listen to this podcast and people who are just ordinary Canadians going about their business is that we are in the process of a really terrifying geopolitical realignment um We're in which dust. every single thing that we have taken for granted since about the 50s is going to be challenged and questioned and in the process of this alignment what we are signaling both to our enemies and to our allies and we have both you can eat buffet free we're not a serious country and you can't take us seriously you shouldn't be including us in your new intelligence um uh, alliances you shouldn't be including us in your new submarine deals you can cut us out because we're not we're not serious players in the world and we are not pretending to be serious players in the world. And that is going to have geopolitical consequences for us down the line. For example, if people want to shoot Canadian nationals on our soil, they are going to be able to do that with impunity if the Western Alliance doesn't have our back. And if we don't have the Western Alliance's back, they're not going to have our back. That's how this is going to work. Now, what I do wonder is whether or not people in power in Canada do understand this and have made a very Machiavellian, very calculated decision to say, yeah, we know we're fucking over our allies, but ultimately what are they going to do? Canada. They're not going to kick us out. Yep. That's possible. Because I mean, that is what's happened, right? Because if we had a semi-competent military, and I don't say that to to knock the military command or the, the men and women of the armed forces, they're great. But if we had a military that was being funded and and fielded competently by the civilian authorities it serves, we would have cards to play. Mm-hmm. And I hate and to, again to any serving member of the forces or any of their loved ones, I hate to be so brutal about this. But an effective military force or other hard power assets, whether it's a robust uh, foreign affairs development budget whether it is a a thriving diplomatic core or really cutting edge intelligence capabilities. These are the table stakes in the games we need to be in so that we can counteract our own relatively small size and call in favors. And what we're doing right now with India and also specifically in with Poland, with the the Nazi thing is we're calling in favors. Well, the other thing I say is, and we're, we're calling in favors after we lie to these guys' faces because we promised them at the latest NATO summit we'd hit 2%, and then we cut the budget by a billion bucks two weeks later. 
Well, and the other thing too, is I think people don't necessarily realize that these are the types of favors that, for example, get us favorable access to vaccines in moments mm. of pandemic and crisis. Like this has far reaching and unpredictable implications on things that will affect your life in the future in ways that we don't yet understand or know. So if we are making a conscious decision to pull out, that that's going to have repercussions, guys. You um, can, but it it is that, but it's also things like, you know, the ability, remember when uh, President Biden, I guess it was earlier this year, I don't remember exactly when it was, but President Biden came up to Canada and he had a state visit, went really nice, everybody had a great time, um, and a bunch of stuff got done. Mm-hmm. It, like we, we actually had a bunch of deals get hammered out with the Americans. And one of the things that was commented on by observers at the time, particularly those who have any kind of um, experience in either d- d- official diplomacy or even kind of unofficial back channel diplomacy, is that the problem isn't that the Americans don't like us. They do like us. They just don't think about us. We're not on their radar. And the reason a whole ton of stuff got done just before the president's visit was because the schedule dictated we got some attention and it was kind of like all right guys the president's going to ottawa in a week so what are what are the big action items on the on the list for the canadians tick 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 tick. just tick all those boxes boom done president goes successful visit flies back the reason like that shows how quickly things can get done when you can get attention in allied capitals right now canada correctly is probably everybody's 50th callback Right, because, because we're what, their what, 50th best friend. Because who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? The, the we have no cards not, to play, no chits to call in. no chits. The other thing that I think is interesting is that it's not just on the military stuff that Canada is withdrawing from the world stage. It's almost like we're, let's say, oh, scary time, time to pull up into the shell. It's not um, even that's that almost, organized. But it's not even that organized. It's, it's more reflexive than that. But it's even on, on key issues like energy. For example, mm-hmm. after we saw this in the war in, with uh, when Russia went into Ukraine, we are sitting yeah. on ample, ample natural gas. And if we were able to rapidly expedite liquid natural gas term- terminals, man, would Japan and, and Germany be real happy with us. But we're never going to do that. But that, that's never going to happen because our own internal domestic dramas, our internecine provincial issues, our small ball bullshit is always going to take priority over the geopolitical realities. And like I said, in this in the short term, that makes sense politically. In the long term, there are going to be serious repercussions for us as a nation as a result of that and and, and, our, and our, our diminishing importance on the world stage. And, or another way to put it is Canada's back, as Justin Trudeau liked to say in 2015. Just over a year and a half ago, um, when when the war began, I interviewed a series of Canadian experts in energy, but also specifically energy exports. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed these exports for a couple of reasons. First of all, I wanted to know what we could do domestically to um, uh, improve our own security on this. Now, Canada is an, a net energy exporter, but our distribution systems are weird, right? Like, yeah, like, we're, we're hugely dependent on a relatively small number of um, uh, refineries in Texas yeah. who can actually uh, process our crude. Yep. Natural gas is another problem because, of course, it has to go by pipeline because it's a gas unless you liquefy it, which requires a particular type of export terminal that's mm-hmm. expensive to build. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be done, but it, as a result, um, we don't have a lot of these terminals. And as a result, essentially natural gas is a separate market in America, North America versus Europe. Also, the market forces are such that even though we are um, net positive in energy production in Canada, much of Eastern Canada imports its energy because it's cheaper to get it from abroad than it is within the North American market. Yeah, and if and if you look at the pipe, the way the pipelines are actually built, you can, that, see it on you, you can literally see it. It's yeah. essentially the the oil actually moves kind of like down and around yeah. than it is across. So oh. we're 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 in a deeply integrated market with the U.S. and always have been. And that's, I mean, I'm I'm basically okay with that because it's kind of like i get why that happened but I, I said to these experts i was talking to what can we do like what are the things we can do that will make canada first of all more domestically resilient from any external shock and also better able to contribute to our allies 
And they all gave me all the smart answers you'd expect. More nuclear and more hydropower in Canada mm-hmm. to provide solid base loads mm-hmm. and a more rapid build out of renewables mm-hmm. that will allow us to move our uh, transportation network more to a battery powered future. Like, like really smart things that are becoming more affordable and more technologically possible all the time. And then I said to them, uh, what about exporting to our allies? And it was just laughter. No, no, and I'm not kidding. Some of them just laughed. And I, no, 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 that's never going to happen. We are far too incompetent to ever get that built. By the time we did, the uh, any ally in need, thinking particularly of Western Europe, Germany, and yeah. Japan, they're going to have found other solutions. Yeah, the, the the process to get anything built in this country on a, on a major scale is like you're looking at a 10 to 15 year process. Like, I mean, it's not to say that we couldn't, if things were a little bit more uh, dictatorial, we could get these things built probably in 18 months, but we can't in this country. The The regulatory processes are just so incredible at this point. And, and the consulting processes, the ongoing conflicts with First Nations people, yeah. the uh, internal conflict um, on, on energy, any kind of energy build out is so intense that essentially it's 10 to 15 years at a minimum and no guarantees that it will go through the process. There and, the, and no, well, nobody's go, nobody invests in that kind of environment. I mean, the investment has more or less disappeared as a result of it. The thing that I think is such an important part of this as well is that our allies don't have the time to sit around and wait for us to get our shit together. No, and they, and they Japan never Japan and Germany, you need an energy solution for the next 18 months. Yeah. Any, the, and their diplomatic teams in Canada are going to report to them that what we're talking about here would be a 15-year process. And may still not go through. It, it, depending on what the Supreme Court ultimately decides after the 38th challenge. Yeah, about the 38th challenge about somebody who claimed that their great-great-grandfather yep. trapped on a on a line near the near the future pipeline that would supply the LNG plant. Like that's it, it we're it, it's we are we are in a position of stasis as a country on energy development. Now, I know there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, great, climate change. Okay, great. That stasis also applies to things that are green. So one of the things that I keep on hammering home is like Canada, one of the most unpopulated land masses on earth is, should be able to be a powerhouse for things like next gen nuclear plant development. Like if we were to be really smart, we would do massive transmission lines into the American system. We would be providing clean nuclear energy and we would be able to locate those new, those extremely advanced, extremely safe nuclear energy plants in places where even if they did explode, you'd be a hundred kilometers from the nearest person. So like we're like we're we're actually ideally equipped to do stuff like that, but it's never going to happen. This country is 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 pathologically incapable of thinking that far ahead and doing stuff like that, doing are, doing risky things. We are unable to field a military that can effectively fight. We are unable to contribute in a considerable way to allied intelligence sharing operations, the five eyes. Mm-hmm. We are unable, due to budgetary attrition and lack of bureaucratic focus, able to contribute meaningfully in the field of foreign affairs. Economic development, which is tied to foreign assistance, is not zero, but it's not high. And we have not been able to meaningfully meet the needs of our allies for energy. Maybe one of the things we can do, and I'm looking for a silver lining here, is we have some ability uh, as an agricultural powerhouse, we can provide some mm-hmm. support to food. Yep. So that's something we can do. And yeah, and, and we can write checks and show up at ribbon cuttings and, and things like that. Well, increasing their ability to write checks is going to be diminished in this kind of environment. It's already diminishing. Yeah. And that's why the so, foreign aid budget's dropping as well, right? Like yeah. what's happening with the military, I, I a lot of people think it's an ideological liberal dislike of the military. And they go, hey, Pierre Elliott Trudeau destroyed the military and his son's doing the same thing. I don't think that Justin Trudeau is ideologically well disposed to the military. But I don't see any particularly motivated dislike of it either, right? Because if we had thriving energy exports, great intelligence services, uh, a robust foreign aid and foreign development budget, and we were downsizing the military, you could look at that and you could say, that's an ideological choice. Like that is a policy decision being made for either practical or ideological reasons. What is happening to the military is, I think, a particularly acute emergency against broader Canadian dysfunction. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And also it's a reflection of that broader Canadian dysfunction. Oh, so they, they anyway, become I, cyclical, I, right? Been, they will compound. 
Yes, exactly. And we've we've made this point before. Problems compound. So anyway, I, I think we've gone on about the military too long. Matt, shut up. On that note, again, subscribe, like, go visit Click the like line. and subscribe, folks. Come on, like us, like us, please. We're so nice. We're go so to lineeditor.substack.com. Sign if up you can, for a if you account. can, if you have a high degree of emotional and psychological resilience, <laughs> consider consider subscribing to the line all right on that note i want to be really quick here the notwithstanding clause um so let's just go back and look here so you will recall we've been talking a little bit about the the parents rights um legislation that has come in place in saskatchewan this is very very popular legislation my understanding that it's mostly being done in response to perceived school boards leftward turn on some of this trans rights stuff um, essentially, Saskatchewan issued legislation that said that if uh, students want to socially transition and use different pronouns in school, that should that should result in mandatory disclosure to parents. I think you and my I are more or less unchanged in our position is that this opens a can of worms. You open a can of worms for mandatory disclosure um, at the legislative level. And what you are going to do is you're going to pull, massively polarize an issue, this issue. I also and don't also, trust their motives. Like I, I, I these are culture no, war wedges. Yeah, yeah. These are culture war wedges. We obviously don't trust don't trust the wedges. But the other problem is that it opens up the legislative door for the opposite, mandatory non-disclosure of these things. And I don't think either of these yeah. things in, in in an extreme or legislative framework is 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 an ideal way to go on these sorts of sensitive topics. We've had that conversation before. Well, since we've last talked, um, on Thursday, so yesterday, Court of King's Bench Justice Matthew, or sorry, Michael McGaw granted a request from an LGBTQ advocacy group for an injunction to put that policy on hold until a constitutional challenge can be heard in court. Saskatchewan, led by uh, Premier Mark Scott Moe, has responded to that by essentially invoking the notwithstanding clause. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to get into an explanation of the notwithstanding clause. Um, but if you're this deep into the podcast, you know what it is. You know what it. You know what the notwithstanding clause is. But essentially, this is really interesting. And of course, whenever the notwithstanding clause gets invoked, as it is increasingly being invoked, I find it so interesting because it comes down to the same debate over and over again. You've base it basically comes down to a question of Democrats versus te- technocrats. You either believe in parliamentary supremacy, in which case you believe that ultimately the authority lies with Parliament to set the laws of the land. Um, and you know, regardless of whether or not you think a particular issue hits judicial overreach, this should fall under the aegis of parliament, or you're a technocrat and you believe that the court, guided by the charter, is best equipped to sort of thread the needle through these sensitive issues of competing rights. And if you're on the Democrat side, almost without flaw, you're going to be like, well, I agree or don't disagree with the disagree with the with the the law, but ultimately, you know, we have the notwithstanding clause built into the charter for a reason. And it is for this very reason. It's because parliaments are ultimately supreme on these issues. And so therefore Saskatchewan is entirely within its rights to press the button. Or you're on the technocrat side and you say, these fucking politicians just hate trans kids and are going to like push this this button that should never ever be used or pushed and there should be huge punishment for pushing it. Um, and you don't recognize that there's a judicial overreach or a parliamentary supremacy issue there um, because you ultimately all usually agree with the law. And I mean, like the, the, the conflict there is different. The law, the actual issues we're debating different, but ultimately that is how the debate comes down with the absolute usual suspects every time saying these part, these politicians should be punished for using this clause that is within their legal right to use. And then assholes like us basically saying the clause is there to be used. What did you think was going to happen? Of course, it's going to be used. So it's the same debate every single time with the same suspects every single time. And this is why I hate this debate, because it never actually goes anywhere. But ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, the notwithstanding clause was put in 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 the charter. And there should be or should have been a political cost to politicians choosing to use it. I don't think Scott Moe is going to suffer any political cost for using the notwithstanding clause in this in this instance, and he's within his rights to use it. So, like, people are going yeah. to be upset about it in Toronto for a day, and people are then and then we're all going to move on. You know, every time the notwithstanding clause comes up, we have two debates. 
one of them is about the merits of the issue that underlies the use of the notwithstanding clause, whether it's uh, parental notification or it, I don't even remember what uh, that, it was like. The last one Ford tried to pull it out on was like trying to legislate people back to work. Yeah, or something like, yes, that's right. Uh, Quebec, I think Quebec, right. Quebec pulls it out like every Regularly. other week. I so, mean, yeah. So every time someone uses it or talks about using it, we have the debate about the actual issue at hand. But then we also have the meta debate. Yeah. And I think what you, you've said is accurate, Jen. Um, I, I have joked before, and I wish I remember where I wrote this. I would link to it. But basically, the Canadian Constitution is like a car that has a button right on the dashboard, and it's the wheels fly off button. And if you push the button, the wheels of your car fly off. And people put the wheels fly off button onto the dashboard on the understanding that no one would ever push it. And every few years, somebody pushes the wheels fly off button and the wheels fly off. And people are like, why did you push the wheels fly off button? So, Because we wanted the wheels to fly off. Like it's a specific thing for a specific purpose that we specifically put in for a different specific purpose. If we don't want people using it, we either need to establish a huge political cost or we need to get rid of it. And we're well, not going to do either. We're not going to do things. either. And the other thing too is, the more people push the button, the less the political cost. We just got so the, wheels flying everywhere. So I mean, this is this. An, some people will read this as an inherent flaw of the charter, and some people like me will point out that that's a bad analogy because it assumes that wheels flying off is a bad thing. No, sometimes you might want the wheels to fly off. Sometimes you want the wheels to fly off. So yeah. like, like sometimes that's the purpose of the exercise. So look, if, if if invoking the the charter is going to impose realistically no political cost by the premier or the government doing it because their jurisdiction supports their doing it, then I would argue that that is an appropriate use, an appropriate moment to press the wheels fly off button. Like, I, just, I, I get weirded out by the this idea. is a part this is a democracy that's what democracy well, is exactly like, it. it's it's like, like, i don't know what to tell you you don't get like to dictate you're being this is undemocratic a by doing no, the not, thing explicitly enumerated in the constitution you, you believe in a democracy or you don't you believe that this is a democracy in which ultimately the people get to decide their 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 legislation you know bounded by certain um traditions and expectations and rules and laws or you believe in a technocracy. You believe that all of the democracy stuff is just for show, and really it's up to the the, the courts and the lawyers to make the decisions about the laws for us. Chris Selly, my old... I, uh, I, I, take your pick. Chris Selly, <laughs> National Post columnist, uh, my old cubicle mate down at the uh, the old newsrooms, uh, had a great observation on the website formerly known as Twitter, where he just said, like people are like, oh, it's outrageous that Canadian jurisdictions keep doing this. And he said, what people mean when they say that is that it's outrageous, outrageous that Canadian that... jurisdictions that are not Quebec keep doing this. Yes. And it's correct. You know what? Again, like you and I are very clear on where we stand on the actual substance of the issue at hand here. But if you put a wheels fly off button onto your dashboard, don't get mad when people have the wheels fly off. Like we put it there, it's being used. Either find a way to establish a political cost or get rid of it, or well, like I said, neither of those things are going to happen. So the wheels are just going to fly and, and we're just going to continue to 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 move Every forward time. in our non-deliberate way because we're Canadians and that's just how this is. We can so clip like, this and just use it in the podcast again the next time it happens. Brilliant. All right. I think that that's pretty much our podcast today, except I did want to introduce one potential segment, and that was uh, responding to reader comments when I think that they were really oh. smart or thoughtful. Uh. I think I received or I noticed two reader comments. Now, just so you All know, right. guys, we do try to keep an eye on comments and respond to them when we can. But I mean, if you've been in this side of the content creation making sausage, you know that the comments can get overwhelming. Actually, most of our commenters, Matt, are, are pretty awesome. I really like okay, but I did call a lot of them a few months ago. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, the survivors we have, we have a, are we have, thoughtful we have, and reasonable. We have a, a, a mixed love-hate relationship with commenters, as all journalists do. We love it when they're thoughtful and intelligent, have great things to add, and a lot of our commenters at the at the line do. And then, you know, sometimes it devolves into flame-warring, internecine battles, and that is a waste of our time. And so, every once in a while, we'll turn off the comment section on our webpage and basically to try and teach you all a lesson. And then I, no, and then I will go <laughs> and I will take three or four particularly troublesome commenters and I will shoot them in front yes. of the others. And uh, it helps. Uh, metaphorically, metaphorically. And it does help, but it's so a far. lot of work. 
it, as people who are aware or do this sort of stuff is where, you know, community moderation is, is tricky. Um, but every once in a while, we, we do have really smart people who listen to our podcasts, oftentimes smarter than us. And sometimes they have things that are just really valuable to say. So this one came from uh, under our last YouTube video. Um, I won't read out the reader, the person's username or, or name here, because I just don't want to put them in that position. But um, this was in response to what we were talking about, the India stuff. Um, quote, I think our much-loved podcasters have made a minor error about the Indian government's travel advisory. It is not warning Indians against non-Indian Canadians. It is warning Hindus against Sikh Canadians, which in and of itself, Jen Gerson aside, is problematic, but let's move on. It is responding in an exaggerated way to quote-unquote fears that Sikh Canadians will be violent toward Hindus on the grounds that the Modi government expresses Hindu nationalism, Hindu majoritarianism, and now as a Hindu government stands accused of killing a Sikh. There have already already been vandalism attacks on Hindu temples in southern Ontario by Sikhs. I'm going to assume that that's correct. I have not been able to verify that. The danger for ordinary Hindus in Canada is probably insignificant. As noted, the advisory exaggerates, but it is important to understand two things. A, that it is not blaming non-Indian Canadians for racism, but is focused on the Indo-Canadian community itself. And B, there are already some Sikh Hindu tensions within Canada. This situation could inflame them, and these need to be understood and diffused, something the Canadian government is not doing. Now, firstly, that was a really, really thoughtful, smart comment, and I really wanted to highlight it because... That dude does not get shot this week. That dude does not get shot that this week. We really appreciate that comment because that is that is insight into what's happening within those communities that I don't have. Now, I was a bit flippant when we started to talk about this last week. I was like, haha, the Indian government is issuing a travel advisory against us, which is just just reward for sorry, the Indian government motivated by politics and their own info war agenda are yep. issuing a travel advisory against us. And that is just reward for the fact that we in Canada did exactly the same thing to America on the uh, trans issues a couple of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I so I was being a bit flippant about that and I was not actually getting into the, the technicalities of the travel advisory itself. This guy did and I really appreciate that. So I really wanted to read that out and say thank you for that comment. The other reader comment I got was from someone who um really appreciated the fact that or seemed to appreciate the fact that um I was concerned about the use of, of the uh word hate in describing the one million children march that happened last week. My position on this is, you know, hate's a very loaded term. And unless there is sort of unequivocal proof that something is absolutely beyond the pale, a hate speech, a hate rally, this would be like skinheads, Nazis, whatever. Yep. I, you know, for the sake of my own credibility and wanting to be considered a fair-minded commentator, I would be reluctant to use that. I, I think it's an injudicious use, use of the word hate in this context. This person seemed to agree with me on that, but then took issue with the use of my term gender ideology. Now, Matt, what's your take on that? The, the term? The term gender ideology being an inflammatory term. When I would when I would hear the term gender ideology, I would assume the person was probably speaking critically over what we would more colloquially call the culture war issues surrounding accommodation of trans and non-binary people. Okay, so I'm going to read a portion part, part of my response because you would tend to agree with him there. I didn't see it that way. Personally, I don't assign any emotional connotation to the term gender ideology. That's just me. I don't. For me, it is just the clearest, simple, most obvious way to describe a set of beliefs around gender and sex. I don't see it as an inflammatory term. So this is what I, I'm going to read a little bit of my own response. Um, the problem I see, sorry, firstly, claiming that language like quote unquote hate contains comparable emotional baggage to a term like quote unquote gender ideology is honestly where I think this person's position fell flat. For me, it doesn't carry that any emotional con con connotation. I see it as a straightforward and widely understood descriptor for a set of beliefs. And I see, mo more importantly, I don't see an obviously superior term for this set of beliefs. I think the people who are hearing the word gender ideology and are associating it with negativity are doing so because they're hearing the term gender ideology being used by people they disagree with. And so yeah. therefore they're attaching that emotional negativity to it. And this is a problem that I see very consistently on the left. 
you guys seem to think the problem is inherent to the label rather than the intellectual content of that label. And so when the label becomes problematic in the eyes of the public, the answer is consistently to change the label. And the um, analogy I pulled up here was the use of the word woke, the way that woke oh, was yeah, I was, used. I was about to say that, yeah. Exactly the same. You don't like it when I use gender ideology because there's a part of the population that has labeled gender ideology as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Rather than consider the possibility that the label has turned sour because that population fundamentally disagrees with what the label accurately describes, you'd rather do the far easier linguistic bait, bait and switch. Find a new, more palatable term, and then, you know, uh, uh, rinse and repeat the process over and over again. Um, and then, of course, anybody who doesn't get on board with the new, more palatable term is labeled a bigot because they're labeled as being aligned with the wrong tribe. My problem with this is that in the long run, I don't think it works out. If you're going to win ideological battles in a sustainable way, you need to persuade people about the actual intellectual merit of your position rather than waste time picking fights about what your position ought to be called. Further, I think you have to be open to the possibility that many non-picketed people have given quote unquote gender ideology a fair examination and simply don't find its precepts to be compelling. So as I said, I think that my objection to this person who gave me, by the way, a wonderful, thoughtful email at the time that I really appreciate and like, but my objections were twofold, and I'm going to sum them up here. Saying that gender ideology is a loaded term in the way that hate is a loaded term, I don't think that flies. And secondly, I think this is falling into, secondly, I don't think there's an, a better term, a more easily comprehensible superior term that is widely understood than gender ideology. If it one comes into existence, I'll use it. But right now, I think that's the best understand best term that we have. And secondly, I think that I don't want to get fall into the trap of this constant label bait and switching. Yep. Yeah. The only, I mean, two two quick responses from me on this one. I think you already said woke is almost the perfect term. If yeah. I hear someone referring to, to a person or a thing or a cause or whatever as woke, there is like a ninety five percent chance they mean it pejoratively. It's yes. possible they mean it neutrally or even positively, but overwhelmingly when it is used, it is used by opponents. So but that's because the, the the intellectual content of the word woke has become pejorative, has has been problematized because people looked at what counted as woke and disagreed with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's like the problem mm -hmm. isn't the label. The problem is that they um, they disagree with what the label is very accurately describing, and then they're problematizing the label. Well, that's, that's my second the, point. That's the issue. My wife is an elementary school teacher, as you know, and years ago, this is going back a while, I was at an end of your party, and one of the teachers who was at that party was retiring. She had hit her 30 years. And this teacher was an absolute saint, one of the incredibly rare and wonderful people who work exclusively with special needs children. And uh, that, that requires a very special kind of person. I, I would not have the emotional ability to do that. And I got to talking with her about the kids she had worked with over her 30 year career. And I'm trying to remember when this party was, would have been 10 years ago. So let's say her career roughly would have gone from the early eighties to the early 2010s. And I asked her how many approved terms she had cycled through in that time in how to describe the children she was working with. Yeah. And she thought about it. And I don't even remember what all the terms were, but there were about seven of them. Mm -hmm. And they would have included terms. And I say this in a non-pejorative way. Imbecile, spastic, cripple, handicapped, retarded. And then moving more recently through terms like uh, differently abled, spe uh, special, um, exceptional, things like that. And I, I asked her just kind of what she thought about that. She kind of shrugged and she said, well, just, they're just kids to me. Like, it's my job. I like, I love these kids. I work with them. But she said to me, every couple of years, we would get a new directive from the board of education that you now work with X children. And you would change, like we'd change all the signs in the rooms and we'd have to educate our colleagues and parents would come in. And it's like, I worry my kid might be retarded. And they'd go, well, we call them this now. Like it was this constant process of like linguistic reframing. And I said to her, like, what do you think about that? And she kind of just shrugged and goes, well, come on. I mean, like she goes, it's like, this is like the least of my daily aggravations. Like I had real mm -hmm. stuff to worry about. But she said, after like the fourth time we did this, I just kind of realized that there will never be a neutral word to describe a bad thing because the word will become associated with the bad thing and it will become bad. So then we'll need a new this, word. 
this goes on, and we, we, we've written about this a little bit, but it, it's, it goes to like the words are magic school of thought. Right, like, like, like just use the right words. If, if, I, if I can just fixed. find, a, if I can just find a more sterile, more neutral, yeah. emotionally barren word, therefore yeah. I'll be able to suck magically suck the emotional content out of the thing that I'm trying to describe. Yep. Right, and it doesn't work. Oh. And or, or it works for two years, and or then the word becomes years. associated with the thing, and then and then essentially this this sort of constant re. <laughs> recreating new magical more sterile words becomes part of a of a class structure a class consciousness right like it becomes if, if you are part of the correct um class you you are up to date on the latest passwords the latest language that we use to describe things that are not bad no no just different you know like it it, it becomes your you're you're stuck like a rat on a wheel right that's all it is it, it doesn't get you any further but it gives you the illusion of moving forward on, a, on an issue or the illusion of being more progressive on an issue. So as I said, I, I think gender ideology is an accurate description of what we're talking about. I don't see anything obviously better, but please understand that when I'm using that term, I'm not I'm not personally inserting a pejorative meaning or method in it. Yep. And I think that that's why the comment for me stood out is, again, this person offered me a very, very intelligent, very insightful comment. He tried to struck me as very reasonable. I disagreed with him. And I try to give him a thoughtful response back, but I did appreciate the, the comment. He's emailed me back again, and I haven't read the comment yet. I haven't read the latest email. So anyway, we'll, we'll have some back and forth exchanges. But once again, I, we really do appreciate really smart reader comments like that, and I'd like to reward them. Well, perhaps uh, that reader and many others can join us at our event in Toronto next month. Uh, we have been posting information about it on the website, uh, theline.substack.com, which will soon be, but is not yet, readtheline.ca. So give us another week or so on that. It takes some time to set that up. Uh, also, shout out, uh, thanks to Justin Ling of Bug-Eyed and Shameless. He's been helping me figure out how to get the custom domain going, so I promised him uh, a warm thanks uh, in the dispatch. We'll include a link over to uh, his work. If you do want to attend our event, uh, again, line editor at protonmail.com or go to theline.substack.com, buy a ticket, ask us where to find information. We can connect you with our event planning team. If you are interested in sponsoring the event or even just donating a couple of tickets for those who cannot afford us, uh, same email address. Uh, let us know. We'll be in touch. Please like please subscribe. Whatever podcast app you are listening to this on, please subscribe. Leave us a glowing review. I am Matt Gurney. It does, it does actually oh, matter, by the way. I would say does, glowing yes. reviews and the, the, sub, the likes. I mean, I realize we're being obnoxious and asking for it, but if we want to trip those algos and get more people yeah. listening to us, it actually makes a big difference to us. It makes so a huge you. difference, and it's one of the easiest things uh, you, our, our fans, can do to support us. If you don't have an account with The Line already, uh, sign up at our substack, theline.substack.com. And uh, join us. Um, you know, a, a free account gets you access to a lot of what we do, but we would love it if you paid. But we'll settle for free for now. All right. Are we ready to sign off? Let's sign off. I am Matt Gurney. I'm Jen Gerson. This is The Line Podcast. Take care. Take care.